Our first reading is from Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And from Ruth chapter 2 verses 1 to 13. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the weepers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land to come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision 
by what is called a circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, having brought us near by your Son, may we likewise extend ourselves to others, that they may be brought near to you through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Excuse me. I'm an immigrant to Canada, and having called this country home for a bit over 22 years now, So I remember as a fresh teenager, I asked my parents why they moved us here, me and my siblings. They they said it opened opportunities for me and my two brothers and sister for us kids to get a better education. That's what they told us. So that was to me the whole narrative for the longest time for why we moved. Later on, as I became an adult, I found out there were other factors that led my parents to move uh, from the Philippines. See, there, there was at a time conflict between my parents and close relatives, which has since been resolved. And there were other difficult reasons that led my dad to leave behind uh, the business that he had grown through uh, the years, abandoning a very comfortable life in Manila with his family to start from scratch a completely different life in a foreign land I don't yet fully grasp the full extent of the sacrifice my parents made, but I've grown through the years to appreciate them. I don't know it all in detail, but I've not lived long, but I can already look back at the fingerprints of God along the way, despite how obviously costly and risky it was for my parents to have done what they've done. 
as they had started out in a foreign land, to uproot themselves, take that risk. Because here in Canada, this is where I got the chance to grow in my own Christian faith, where I become who I am today. This is where I met my wife, started out my family. This is where I foresee myself continuing on this journey of becoming. And God knows what's ahead of the story. And the story he has written out for my parents, for me, my family onwards. But part of all of our collective stories is our first having to be strangers in this land. With the strange slowly becoming familiar, with the familiar slowly becoming our home, and now at home here, yet longing for a better country. I don't mean that politically, I mean a heavenly one, a promise that is yet to become real. Now, the story that was read for us about Ruth, that got me to revisit my own story. And the story of Ruth, though ancient, it's still a very resonant tale for so many immigrants and refugees today. That largely has made up the Canadian population. It's not just a story about immigration, but it is at least that. The story is simple, but it's elegant in its retelling. Now, it took place around 12th century BC, during the latter period of the judges of Israel, when the Hebrew people were far flung from one another in their own tribes across their now homeland in Canaan. They were divided, and even sometimes they were warring against each other, brother against brother. But together as a nation, they were actually being pummeled by a rotation of foreign oppressors. Now, this Israel was a far cry from a few hundred years ago when Joshua settled all the tribes in their share of the inheritance of the land. The generations afterwards, they forgot who Joshua was. They forgot who Moses was. And they were oblivious to their own story of rescue from slavery from Egypt. Israel here again became a subjugated people. And they were all alienated from one another in their own country. It's in this bleak backdrop that the story of Ruth drops in. Once upon a time, a family of four left their hometown Bethlehem because there was no food. There was famine. They were desperate enough to leave for Moab. Now, this is the land of one of their historic enemies, very distant relatives of Israel with a very sordid past. See, the Moabites descended from a very incestuous relationship in the beginning. In this land of Moab, this family of four from Bethlehem, they grew by interracial marriage. This was very strictly forbidden by the Jewish law. But at the time, no one really cared anyway. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no police, no enforcement on these laws. The Hebrew boys married Moabite girls. So far, things are looking all right. They're growing, they're surviving, but then tragedy strikes. The patriarch of the family dies. And then soon afterwards, another tragedy. The Jewish boys die themselves. Only now the women are left. The matriarch and her two daughters-in-law. Culturally, they were all goners. No male heir, no apparent future, no able-bodied man to take care of them, no one to do the heavy lifting, as it were. 
Now the matriarch, she's named Naomi. She thought to spare her daughters-in-law from a dead end while they were in their youth. Uh, She releases them for another chance to a future. Go out there, you can marry another man. Don't stick around with me. I have no future for you. If I even had sons, would you wait for them to grow up and for you to marry them? That doesn't make sense. Letting them go meant that Naomi would be totally alone and she would have no help. So one daughter-in-law goes away, but one stays behind. And this one was named Ruth. Ruth says to Naomi, Where you go, I go. Where you live, I will live. Your people, they're my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die. That's where I will be buried. So help me, God. Not even death will come between us. Sounds like a marriage vow. It's like a wedding oath that you give to a spouse. But it's more intense. There's a lot of commitments here. Strong language. Ruth the Moabite was obviously more than determined to now bear the cost and the loss herself. She didn't have to do that. It meant that Naomi would not be alone, that Naomi would have help, that Naomi would have company. But that would mean that Ruth would lose her identity, Ruth would lose her family, Ruth would lose her home. Despite being released from obligation, Ruth still chose to lose everything, her sense of self, to show her relentless loyalty and kindness to Naomi. Here is the stranger. This is an historic enemy of Israel, showing an ordinary way of loyal kindness to a member of God's chosen people in Israel. So the, the, the uh, plot line goes forward. Together, they, the two widows make their way to Bethlehem, but their places are now swapped. See, Naomi was a stranger, now returning home as a citizen. But Ruth leaves her home, now as a stranger in Israel. But it just so happens, as they were going back to Bethlehem, this is the start of the barley harvest. It's a, it's a party for everyone at that time. See, the change of setting now here is drastic. It's like, it's like immediately stepping inside this warm, cozy chalet, and you see the fireplace all lit up, and then there's a table in front of you all spread out for a huge Thanksgiving party. All the food is all warmed up. It's apple cider and all the desserts there. After you've just got out of a mass family funeral service, you're drenched from the cold, rainy evening. That's a surprising shift in scenery. It's from icy gray to warm yellows and reds and oranges. This is a turn now in the plot line. See, they've settled in, they're dried up, as it were, they're warm and cozy. Ruth, again, in her gumption, she took to action and offered, I'm going to gather some grain. We need food here. And it made practical sense. Ruth was the younger and the more able-bodied of the two. But being young, it was risky for her to be out there as a young widow to glean in the fields. You... She exposed herself to the elements, but more the potential abuses from bad characters who take advantage of her. Regardless, we hear Ruth just being hopeful. Maybe I'll land in a field whose owner would be favorable towards me. And it just so happens that Ruth 
chose this one field that belonged to this guy named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's late husband. He's called a worthy man, you know, reputed to be this noble, God-fearing man. It's quite a rarity here. In fact, we pass over that. But it's a rare person to find in these religiously backsliding days in Israel. He knew the law, as you, we had just read. So we hear Boaz himself greeting his own workers in the name of God. He's very pleasant, very decent, but religious. And he's out in his field. He's supervising, but also mingling with his workers. As he's milling about, he notices Ruth far away there. Now in a small town like Bethlehem, everyone knew everyone. And of course, Ruth stuck out like a sore thumb. Now Boaz did some fact-finding and learned about Ruth's extraordinary loyalty to Naomi after all that they've been through. A gossip of this kind, this mix of tragedy and loyalty at the same, would have made the rounds just like that. Boaz goes out of his way to make it as comfortable, accommodating, and secure for Ruth to gather the necessary food that she needs. Boaz gives instruction to his workers, make lots of room for Ruth. You'll share your water reserves with her as though she's on payroll. She's like a worker with you. And then leave out some bundled sheaves that you've already processed and tied it all up. You, know, you don't have to put that in the barn. Leave it for her as a bonus. And then Boaz approaches Ruth, stoops down. Let me give you a tip, Ruth. Keep with the crowd of women. It's added protection for you. On and on. See, Boaz went, he went further than the Jewish law required of him. He was not obligated to do that, but he chose to in order to show that same loyal kindness to Ruth as she had shown to Naomi. It's kind of like paying forward in a way. But here we're seeing a member of God's chosen people showing loyal kindness to the stranger, an historic enemy of Israel. So we see the circle sort of linking up the loyal kindnesses that's being thrown around and shared by ordinary people. Now, Ruth was taken aback by all this. She wonders out loud, bowing down to Boaz, sign of respect, from whence this sheer kindness to me? The way Boaz responds to Ruth, it reveals the deep ocean currents of God-infused waters that ran all over Boaz's soul. This is what he says. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's an astonishing statement from an Israelite man to a Moabite widow. Boaz here is overlooking gender, ethnicity, religion, class. He does not see any of that. He goes over that and said he knows this is a person in absolute desperation, yet was still willing to overextend herself at her own cost to show loyal kindness to a fellow desperate widow. She left behind home country and family and embraced this strange new world and religion of Israel as her own. And Boaz sees all of that and interprets this as Ruth having taken refuge under the wings of God. This is her taking refuge under the wings of God. Now this is language 
of covenant membership. This language of covenant inclusion. Boaz was treating Ruth as a partner of Israel, a chosen woman of God, an inheritor and beneficiary of the rights and privileges of God's covenant love. That's revolutionary. Now, Boaz wasn't so much saying, Ruth, you've earned this break in life because of the heroic deeds that you've just done for Naomi. God returned you the reward for what you've done. He said that. It's a little bit about that, but it's mostly him saying, Ruth, without your intending to, you've hidden under the shadows of God's wings. You're overshadowed by his love. After all you've been through and all that you've done in spite of it all, you have run into the embrace of God without your knowing it. And there's nothing but his grace just for you. This is Boaz blessing Ruth with this benediction. After already having blessed her with tangible goods and services. Now we didn't get to read the ending. But Ruth's story ends with her marrying Boaz. And together they have a son who's been named Obed. It's preserving the line of Naomi's late husband. But surprisingly... And unconventionally, this grandson, Obed, was counted as belonging to Naomi, the matriarch, and not to the patriarch, which would have been the common thing to do. Even here, this is Naomi's story. I've just been talking about Ruth, but this is Naomi's story also. And it ends with the beginning of her standalone lineage in her own right. That's not even the full ending. Remember, as I've described, this is the, there's a larger backdrop of this backslidden, subjugated Israel, divided within herself. She is alienated in her own homeland. There's without relief, without hope. But there's this son, Obed, Ruth and Boaz's son. This becomes now a premonition of the future of the confederacy of Israel. This is the premonition of the reconciliation of the twelve tribes, brother with brother. This is now you see the first branch of the dynastic tribes of the Judean kings who were to chart a course for the nation's faithfulness to the covenant with their God. Because Obed bears Jesse and Jesse bears David and David gets anointed king, this proto-Messiah. He's going to be the one who founds the united kingdom of Israel. He's the one who's going to reinstate the Levitical sacrifices again. He's going to be the one to architect the Jewish temple worship. Behind the larger backdrop was God showing his own unrelenting, loyal kindness to his people. The people that would have forgotten and felt forsaken by God. Where the heck are you, God? But God was coming again to rescue all of them to restore them, reinstate the covenant that they had forgotten, that they had discarded. And God did this by infusing his will and his purposes in and through the slow, ordinary, simple deeds of unremarkable small-town people to slowly unroll and unravel the scroll of his grand designs and purposes for Israel. This is the fuller ending 
to the story of Ruth, the beginning of the beginning of the age of Israel's anointed monarchy. I mean, that's a lot of information. That's a lot of storytelling in the Bible. What can we glean from all of this, pun intended? What handful of kernels can we clutch home from this story? Now, these grand sweeping ripple effects that are still rolling on through the course of time, it all began in a barley field in a small town called Bethlehem. And this story spotline started out, yes, so miserably, tragically, so grimly. And its characters were ordinary, simple, unremarkable people. And they did remarkably well for the worst of their own circumstances. They did the best they could having no idea that they were actually ordained to take part in the restoration of a unified kingdom of Israel for the centuries to come. They only took hold of what was right in front of them, not presuming, but obeying, not despairing, but hoping, not doing the bare minimum, but they were generous, they were kind, they were hospitable. Very simple things to do. Nothing heroic. They were simple to do. It's very much like your own story, perhaps. My story. Perhaps you feel like the plot line of your own story is this grim, tragic twist of fate. You may be feeling that right now. As if you're caught in the cold rain. and You didn't bring a jacket. And you don't have an umbrella with you. And you're now just drenched and soaked with despair. You're just thinking of giving up. That's what may be what you're feeling right now. Or you may be waiting and you're just hoping and praying for that turn, that change of scenery from that icy gray to warm yellows. And you're just tired of waiting. How long will it take? Or you may feel like you're in this huge Thanksgiving party. And there's this banquet table in front of you already. You're just grabbing what you can. It's just so great. You're so filled with gratitude and joy. You're surrounded by family and friends. And you're being tempted to just coast. And you're just being tempted to just enjoy that by yourself and with the people that you love. And that's it. Wherever you are in your own plot line, in your own story, however you're feeling in life, Let's listen to what St. Paul has to say to you right now. Therefore, remember, in case you've forgotten, that at one time you were separated. You were alienated from the commonwealth, the chosen people of God. You were strangers to the covenant of promises, and you were without hope. You were without God in this world. But now, in the name of Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near. By his blood. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. See, the full ending to Ruth's story is not King David. God has written out this bigger narrative for the world. In fact, you're part of that. This transcendent story with your own part to play in it. Your unique story to live out in your own life, to live in the vigilance and hope that God has given you. This is the grand reality. You're no longer a foreigner. 
You're not a stranger. You're not an outcast. You're not an exile in a world that seems like you could never have it as your home. You are home in Jesus Christ. He is the great descendant of Ruth. He has shown you his unrelenting, loyal kindness and made you an heir of his own royal bloodline. You've been adopted. You have become family. You're a citizen stamped by the Holy Spirit of God in his commonwealth. You've taken refuge under the shadow of his wings. And Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare a home. And he's going to bring that down into this world. He's going to change this broken and dying and violent world by resurrecting it from the dead. Where he's going to make every corner and inch of this place a home. It won't be strange to any creature. Every square inch will be a home. It will be safe. It will be warm. There will be no one who is strange or alienated. But before all of that should happen, all you have and all that I have together is what's right in front of us right now. It's what's right in front of us. Like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz, we can only do the best that we can. We're unremarkable people of a supremely remarkable God, not presuming, but obeying, not despairing, but hoping, not doing the bare minimum, but being generous, being hospitable, being kind. And who knows, with that kindness, there will be this cosmic ripple effect that you don't have an idea is going to impact some life, some future, some generation, some country. For God knows that what we do today in our own stories, in our own lives, They have waves that are carried along through the shores of time and they will join with the countless deeds and sacrifices of many others as we take our place, as we take our part in the resurrection of this world. Jesus himself is our shalom. He has made all of us one. He's broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new confederacy of humanity, making peace, reconciling us to God in one body through the cross. This is the fullest ending to the story of Ruth. This is the ending to the story of our lives. And that ending is just the beginning. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.